Uh, If you would turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, we're going to continue our study through this chapter on the parables of the kingdom. Matthew 13, we'll be looking at the parable of the weeds, verses 24 to 30, and then the explanation of it is in verses 36 to 43. Matthew 13, 24. We'll just read the parable first. So verses 24 to 30. It says this. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. It is another parable about sowing. It sounds similar to the one we looked at last week, the parable of the sower or the soils. But it is very important, and I should emphasize up front, listen to me, do not mix the parables. Do not blend your interpretation of one with the interpretation of another. Each parable should stand alone and emphasizes a specific truth. If you blend the parables, you'll come up with some bad theology. You will. For example, if you blended this parable with the parable of the sowers, you might think that Jesus goes out and sows good seed into good soil, but that the enemy has access to that good soil, which is the heart, and the enemy can reverse or twist the truth that Jesus has planted in your life, and you can turn out to be a weed. Is that good theology? It's bad theology. That implies that you can lose your salvation that the enemy has access to your heart, which he doesn't. Only Jesus Christ has the ability to transform a heart and to produce good fruit, good soil. You'll notice the differences up front. Okay? In, the parable of the sower, in the parable of the sower, the sower is not identified. In this parable, the sower is identified. It's the Lord Jesus. In the parable of the sower, the seed was a message. It was the word of the kingdom. In this parable, the seed is... Well, it's people. It's people. Good seed and bad seed. In the parable of the sower, the weeds were worldly concerns. In the second parable, in our parable today, the weeds are people. And again, in the parable of the sower or the soils, the good soil represents soft hearts, but the good soil or the field in the second parable is the world. 
So don't mix the parables. Don't mix the parables. Let's take this as a standalone story that was meant to be thrown alongside a specific spiritual truth. Each parable emphasizes something. In the parable of the sower, we saw that the soils were emphasized, and that is the heart's response, the varied responses to the gospel. In this parable, the parable of the weeds, judgment is emphasized. Specifically, it's going to provide a description of what the kingdom looks like in this age. Wheat, or sorry, weeds among the wheat. And what hope we have at the end of the age as we trust the Lord to judge and to deal with the weeds. Here is another verse I would like us to remember as we look at this parable. It's Psalm 27, 14. In the context of this psalm, David is surrounded by enemies. He is surrounded by unbelievers that are not just pesky, but they're threatening his life. And this is David's sermon to his soul. Surrounded by enemies, surrounded by unbelievers, this is what he tells himself. Psalm 27, 14. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Christians, are you having trouble waiting on the Lord? You having trouble waiting on the Lord, especially in today and in our society? There are unbelievers that surround us. Pesky weeds that are seeking to influence us. They're seeking to corrupt us. It seems as though they have all the strongholds. They've got the government. They've got the school system. They've got the media. They've got the healthcare system. They've got the stock market. They have the banks. And thinking about that is overwhelming. Well, it seems as though unbelievers and Satan specifically has all the strongholds in this world. But Christian. Wait for the Lord. Do not take vengeance upon yourself. Do not seek social justice on man's terms. Wait for the Lord. Trust in God to ultimately exercise his judgment on this world. And he will do that at the end of the age. And so this parable is for us, very much for us today. Christ is preparing us by telling us how it would be when we live in this age and the hope we have at the end of it. So let's first look at the parable. That's point number one in your outline. It's the parable. This is a story of foul play and a farmer's wisdom to fix it. A story of foul play and a farmer's wisdom to fix it. Let's just review and emphasize a few points. First of all, the field is The farmer's field. He owns it. He prepares it. He sows it and he tends to harvest it and reap the reward. The field is the farmer's. But this farmer has an enemy. And instead of this enemy directly confronting and attacking the farmer, he seeks to hurt the farmer by attacking his crop. This is a costly attack. He sows weeds into the field. Maybe your version says tears. 
He does this while the farmer's men are sleeping and while the farmer is away. Now, what are these weeds that he sows? These weed, uh, or the weed that he sows is likely what's called a darnel weed. This is a weed that looks very similar to wheat. Some call it wheat's evil twin. It looks exactly like wheat until it bears grain. Now, the, the grain that wheat bears is a brown grain that is good for food. But the darnel bears a black seed that is poisonous. So it's a deceptive plant. Now, farmers would expect a few darnel weeds to appear in a crop, but the large number of these weeds makes it clear that it was a sinister attack. The farmer knows right away. This was not an accident. This didn't happen naturally or organically. Somebody did this. It was his enemy. Now the question is, what do you do about it? What does the farmer do about all these weeds spread throughout his crop? What is the best decision to save his wheat, but to get rid of the weeds? His servants come and they, they immediately want to rip out all the weeds. They want to get all of that Darnell weed out of there. But in wisdom, listen, in wisdom, the farmer says, no, don't do that. Let these two plants grow together. Why? Well, in the first place, he has to wait for the time of harvest because that is when all the wheat will produce their grain. If he acts too hastily, he might rip out a wheat that hasn't produced yet. And it still looks like the Darnell weed. Also, what was commonly known in farming is that these weeds, their roots would intertwine with the root of the wheat. So acting too hastily, you could really rip up, again, premature wheat if you go after the weeds. Also, notice that the farmer doesn't say to the servants, hey, wait until the time of harvest and then you guys can do it. No, 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 he has another party do the reaping. It's the reapers. Those who are qualified, who could discern the difference between a wheat plant and the Darnell weed. And so that's what he does. He and his servants wait patiently until harvest. Then, then the weeds will be separated and burned, and the wheat will be gathered safely into his barn. Again, it's a simple, it's a straightforward agricultural illustration. Every farmer in that group would go, wow, that's a wise farmer. That's good farmer wisdom right there. But what is the spiritual significance of that story? What does it mean? Not every farmer in the crowd got the answer, but only his disciples were given the explanation to this parable. In verse 36, now if we go forward to the explanation of the parable, we see he left the crowds and he went into the house. His disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. See, the disciples knew that this one had an emphasis on the weeds 
and what would happen to them. It was different than the parable of the sower and the soils. And so Jesus gives them the explanation only to those disciples, those true followers of his. So that leads us to the second point in the outline, the explanation. Now, Jesus gives us an explanation in, um, in a way that I think is helpful. First, he gives us the answer key. The answer key to the parable. The rubric, if you will. It's the, the answer key in order to solve the puzzle and to make sense of this parable. And so Jesus is very clear. He tells you what each element represents. Okay, And so we're going to go through. We're going to fill out the answer key before we come up with the interpretation, the answer key will give us a very clear and specific uh, interpretation, explanation. So let's go through the, Jesus' answer key. He answered, look in verse 37, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. So the sower is Jesus. The sower is Jesus in this parable. Now, Son of Man is a title that Jesus would use to reference to himself as the Messiah, but it also emphasizes his humanity. Um, Think about a sower, kind of a humble occupation in the world. Maybe an emphasis here on Jesus' humility to come first to the world as a sower, to sow seed. He doesn't come as a king or a, a, a regent, he comes as a humble sower and farmer. Think about the implications there. If this is Jesus, then to whom does the field belong? Jesus. Jesus owns the field. Jesus does have rights over the field. He has authority over the field. So then what is the field? Well, he tells us in verse 38, the field is the world. The field is the world. Now, some commentators would say that the field is the church. I think if it was, Jesus would have said that explicitly, but he doesn't. He says the field is the world. It's the whole world, which does include the church, but the applications aren't limited to the church. Of course, Christ is the head of the church. He has rights and authority in the church, but doesn't he have rights and authority over the whole world? Is he not the King of kings, the Lord of lords? Even if you go back to the prophecies of his messianic kingdom, which these are parables of the kingdom, are they not? We expect in the uh, consummation of his kingdom that Jesus Christ would have worldwide dominion. That his dominion would not just be simply exercised within the church, but it would be recognized around the world. In Daniel 7.14, it says, To him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so the field is the world. Even though for a time the sower has gone away, he still has rights over the entire world. So Jesus comes, and we're, get, we're following the answer key, and he sows good seed into the world that he owns. What is the good seed? What is the good seed? Well, it's not the same 
as the seed from the parable of the sower. It's not a message. The seed are people. Look down at verse 38. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The sons of the kingdom. So who are the sons of the kingdom? Now again, it's important to interpret parables within their context, to not take meaning from one parable or one story in the past and read it into this story within this context. For example, you might remember that sons of the kingdom was a negative connotation previously in Matthew's account. Do you remember what Jesus said to the sons of the kingdom in Matthew 8, 12? He says that they will go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. They will be destroyed. They will receive punishment for their unbelief. In that context, in Matthew 8, 12, he was referring to the Pharisees and unbelieving Israel, to those who received the promises of the kingdom, but they actually didn't receive them because they did not believe. In this context, being a son of the kingdom is a good thing. It's a very good thing. These are the seed of Jesus. They are called the righteous in verse 43. The righteous one who actually inherit the kingdom. Jesus describes those who inherit the kingdom as blessed ones in the Sermon on the Mount. These are the poor in spirit. They who mourn over sin. They're meek. They're hungry and thirsty for righteousness. They are merciful. They are pure from the heart. They have a righteousness not of within themselves, but a righteousness outside of themselves that far exceeds the Pharisees. They are those who have repented of their sin, received Christ by faith, follow Him, counting the cost. They have come to Him with their burdens, and they have taken up His easy yoke. The good seed, simply put, are believers. Christians. True sons and daughters of the kingdom. They are saved by Jesus and they are scattered. They are sown throughout the world as salt and light. Witnesses to the truth of the gospel. And that's a pretty good strategy, isn't it? You want to permeate the world with a message? Send believers out who can proclaim that message. That's what Jesus did when he sent out his apostles. He wants to win people from every tribe, tongue, and to his kingdom. But should we expect any hindrances as we go out into the world? Well, that's where the pesky weeds come in. Who are the weeds? Jesus tells us at the end of verse 38. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Again, we see two audiences here. Jesus' parables hit the ears of two kinds of people. The blind and those who see. The deaf and those who hear, the dead and the alive, the sons of the kingdom and the sons of the evil one. Who are the sons of the evil one? Well, we can safely assume that the evil one is Satan. It is the devil because Jesus will refer to him in the next verse. Who are the sons of the devil? What are their characteristics? What do they look like, and, and what are they? What are what is their actual? Uh, what are their attributes? Well, in Ephesians two, the sons of the devil are the ones who are dead in their trespasses and sins. 
The sons of the devil are those who are following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at the work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John 3.10, it says, By this it is evident, two kinds of people in this world, children of God, and it is evident those who are children of the devil. Here's the evidence that you're a child of the devil. Someone who simply does not practice righteousness is not from God, nor is the one who does not love, does not love his own brother. So what are signs that someone is a son of the evil one? What are some of the bad fruits that they produce? Well, they don't have genuine love. They disobey God and his word. They manifest the fruits of the flesh, Galatians 5 talks about. All kinds of sinful behaviors and attitudes. Those are the sons of the devil. And just like wheat or darnell, they could be deceivingly similar at times to believers. They could deceive us to to see on the outside, well, they look kind of like a Christian. They call themselves a Christian. But when they start to bear fruit, well, it couldn't be more clear that they are not of us. They are not of Christ. It's evident by their fruit. Jesus says, you'll know them, one from the other, by their fruit. And so Jesus, according to this parable, he saves and he scatters Christians throughout the world, but an enemy comes and he scatters unbelievers among them. Now, who is this enemy? We've hinted toward him, but the enemy is clearly Satan. He has another name, the devil. Look at Jesus' words in 1339. The enemy who sowed them, the enemy who scatters unbelievers throughout the world is the devil. Unbelievers ultimately serve the prince of the power of this air, and, and Satan has worked really hard to blind the minds of the unbelieving, and they are scattered among us. They're here in our communities, and scarily, they're even in our churches. Satan is the enemy of God. He is the enemy of his people. He knows he can't take God head to head. And so what does he do? He goes after his crop. He goes after his mission. He goes after his harvest. He'll do anything to try and ruin God's harvest, to keep him from collecting his reward, his wheat. And what is the harvest? What is this time that Jesus, the sower, is waiting for to separate the weed from the wheats and to collect his harvest and destroy the weeds? Well, we're told the harvest is the end of the age. Again, we're just filling out the answer key here. Jesus gives it to us. The harvest is the end of the age. What age is Jesus talking about? And what are the signs of the end of it? Well, for that, we have to look at really Jesus' teachings on the end of the age, and we see those in the Olivet Discourse later in Matthew. All right, so we're going to get there in our study of Matthew. Jesus is going to give us some clear signs of the end of this age, but in order to really have a grasp on this parable, we need to look forward and preview that, uh, that great sermon, that all of that discourse. So if you go to Matthew 24, 
You don't need to turn there, but let me just highlight some signs of the end of the age. The end of the age comes after, clearly after, the gospel has been proclaimed to the whole world. That would be Matthew 24, 14. The end of the age comes after worldwide tribulation. Wars, natural disasters, rise and falls of empires. And these, are, Jesus says, are but the beginning of the signs of the end of the age. That's chapter 24, verse 8. The end of the age comes after the abomination of desolation. That's a scary title. After he wreaks havoc on the earth. We believe that to be the Antichrist, Matthew 24, 23. But the main event, the main event, and listen here, of the end of the age is the second coming of Jesus. It is the return of the Son of Man. He comes on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. He doesn't come riding in on a donkey as he had before, but riding the chariots of heaven. He doesn't come in a humble form to serve. He comes again to judge, to rule and to reign. And we see a description of that at the end of the Olivet Discourse. Matthew 24, verse 30. And it says, and then, when he comes again, he'll sit on his glorious throne. That is a throne that is on the earth, from which he rules over the entire earth. So again, again, Jesus is describing this age between his first coming, when he sows seed, and his second coming, when he returns. And what are the conditions like during this age of the kingdom, if you will? Well, he told us there will be believers and unbelievers mixed together, living together. But this is clearly the end of the age. And just like a a farmer separates wheat from pesky weeds, Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. We see that in all that discourse. He's going to cast unbelievers into eternal punishment just like a farmer would cast the weeds, bind them up, and burn them. This is the great harvest. And just as a wise farmer saves his crop by waiting until this day, so the Lord Jesus waits until the day of the Lord to save all of his elect until that appointed time. Okay, finally, the last answer in our answer key, who are the reapers? Who have the qualifications and the appointed task of separating true believers from unbelievers? We see the reapers are, look at verse 39, angels. Angels. You need to know that in the descriptions of Jesus' second coming, he's always with his angels. Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. Matthew 25, 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him. Revelation 19, 14, the description of Jesus' second coming. And the armies of heaven, I believe that to be the angels because of Jesus' teaching in Matthew. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on the white horse. The angels play a major role in Christ's return. It's even an angel who binds Satan at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, who binds Satan in the bottomless pit, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. 
And so angels are certainly qualified. They are God's holy angels. They are not corrupted angels. We would call demons. They are God's faithful servants. They worship God and they accomplish specific tasks on his behalf. And one of their tasks is that when Jesus returns, they are going to be the ones who separate the sheep from the goats and who separate the weeds from the wheat, at least delegated that task on behalf of the Lord Jesus, who's ultimately responsible for that. Okay, so there is our rubric. There's our answer key. Jesus tells us what each element of the parable represents. Now, for the interpretation. What do we make of this farmer's wisdom? How does that apply to us today? First of all, let's put it all together and interpret the parable. First of all, Jesus came first to seek and save the lost. Jesus came first to seek and save the lost. The lost. He didn't come to rule and to reign, but to serve and sacrifice, giving his life as a ransom for many. Praise God. He fulfills the law's requirements. He makes atonement for our sin by sacrificing himself on the cross, raising from the dead. He commissions his disciples to go out and proclaim that message, to make more disciples. And so the gospel goes out from Jesus to his disciples. There's the first seed, if you will. And then the disciples go out, proclaim the gospel, and there's more converts. And they go throughout Jerusalem, Judea, and then into Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, and the gospel and God's people spread out across the world. It's an excellent strategy. It's God's strategy of salvation during this age. It's a beautiful Beautiful picture. And we see that evident in the world today. Churches plant throughout the world. The gospel permeates in the world because believers are scattered across the world. But God has an enemy who tries to subvert him and undermine his mission and discourage his people. And that is Satan. Satan goes out and he sows bad seed. 2 Corinthians 4, it says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan has his sons. He has his produce. He has people that live everywhere who serve him and serve his devices. And his strategy is to scatter unbelievers amidst believers, around them, in their communities and in the church. Why? Why would Satan try to do that? Why would that be his strategy? Well, to deceive. To deceive people. To distract people. To discourage people. To devour them even. To attack them by persecutions, by trials, by fire. He would love that churches are filled with unbelievers. People that are deceived into thinking they are truly God's children when they're not, they're His. He would love for you to be surrounded by pesky weeds in your workplace, to discourage you, to distract you, to have you go back and worship idols, give in to worldly devices. He would love for his people and his message 
to permeate the earth. And he'll do anything to undermine and destroy God's harvest. He won't win. He won't do it. But he's working very hard to keep unbelievers blind and believers battered. Now, the servants of God, the servants of God, they are not given a, they're not in the answer key. I think we can assume that the servants of God are his messengers, his people, maybe pastors, maybe evangelists, maybe people like us, you know, servants of Christ. Now, maybe with good intentions, they wonder, what do we do with these pesky weeds? What do we do with the unbelievers in our communities and in our churches? Should we judge them? Should we try to remove them from the earth? Should we go out like the Crusades and try to kill everybody who does not bow the knee to Jesus Christ? Jesus says, no, don't do that. You're not going to help. You're going to hurt. You're going to hurt a lot of people including some of my own. Jesus' instructions here are wise and they're helpful. We are not the judge. God has not given us this world and and, and placed us in this world to judge unbelievers. That's his job. In judging, we might uproot and misjudge someone else. We might pull them up prematurely. Call someone an unbeliever when God has not yet made that determination. They could one day bear fruit and be his elect. We don't know. We don't know who God's elect are. So we can't judge unbelievers prematurely. We need to wait until the gospel is proclaimed to all the elect from every nation until the end of the age. Second of all, Christian, hear this. You're not qualified to judge. You don't have the necessary qualifications. You're not perfect. In fact, you were once one of them. You're a sinner. God's people are not qualified to judge in this age. Leave it to the judge, the Lord Jesus and his reapers on the day of harvest. Jesus promises. He gives us a thing, something to look forward to. He says, when I return with my angels... That's when we'll separate the righteous from the wicked. The sons of Satan will be punished on that day, thrown into the fiery furnace, into the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the sons of God will finally be vindicated. They will be redeemed, and they will be safely gathered in my barn, and they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Again, Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. All right, so what's the application for us here? That's what I believe the interpretation to be, but what does it mean to wait for the Lord? What does that look like? First of all, remember, first point of application, remember, unbelievers live among us. That should not surprise us. Should not surprise us when unbelievers have all the strongholds in this world, they serve the prince of the power of the air, we know that they live among us. So, listen, whether you live in a blue state or a red state, there are unchristian, there are unbelievers there. Whether you're in a casino or you're in a church service, unbelievers are there. They're scattered. And it's helpful to remember that, but also to have a balanced perspective. Listen, on the one hand, 
You should not be naive or overly optimistic about people's professions of faith. Especially, again, a person who calls themselves a Christian but don't live like one. The simple reality is that not everybody who calls himself a Christian really is one. There are tares out there. There are fakes out there. There are the self-deceived, or much worse, there are those who are trying to deceive you. So don't be naive or overly optimistic with every profession of faith. On the other hand, though, listen, don't be harsh and overly pessimistic about people. Sometimes we ourselves put ourselves in the position of judge, in the position of critic. We see small blemishes in somebody's life and we say, ah, they're not a true Christian. They're not Christ's. Are you qualified to make that determination? No. We can be too critical, judgmental. We can even become legalistic and holding unbiblical standards over people. It could simply be that they've not yet matured. That they've not borne fruit yet. They might be good weight, but God is waiting to save them. We leave the heart to the Lord, the only person who can change it. You know, we also should not be tempted to give up or neglect unbelievers. To think that somebody's too far for salvation. Oh, they're too sinful. They're too hard toward the gospel. So I'm just going to let them go. No, that's not our job. We want to avoid both of those extremes as we live with people in this world. We don't want to be naive. We don't want to receive wolf in sheep's clothing or give false assurance to someone who needs to hear and receive the gospel because they really don't know Christ. But on the other hand, we, we also don't want to be harsh and discourage new believers or even hate our neighbor and withhold the truth of the gospel from them. How wicked for us to act that way towards our unsaved neighbors and co-workers. You need to always remember there's two people in this world, believers and unbelievers, and our job is to sow. We are sowers, ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us, and we implore, we plead with all people to be saved, to be reconciled to God. And we leave their response, we leave the growth, we leave the harvest to the Lord of the harvest, Jesus Christ. And we just remain faithful as his servants. So remember, unbelievers live among us. The secondly, wait, wait. Judgment is the Lord's. When the quote-unquote church tries to take judgment into their own hands and exercise judgment across the world, always, always, always ends poorly. I mean, just one reference would be the Crusades, right? That's not our job. Judgment's not ours. It's the Lord. And we've been told that throughout Scripture. Even in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, the people of Israel were told that in Deuteronomy. Look at Proverbs 20, 22. It says, Do not say, I will repay evil. Wait for the Lord, and he will deliver you. Romans 12, 19, Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. That's a citation from Deuteronomy 32, 25. Even when David is surrounded by enemies, accusers, deceivers, armies, and they are 
unjustly seeking to destroy him. He looks to God for vindication, not to himself. He looks to God for justice, for vengeance. And he commands his soul, wait for the Lord. Trust him. Wait on his judgment. You know, justice will be served to unbelievers. They will get theirs. They will get what's coming to them. I mean, look at what Jesus describes in verse 41. The Son of Man will send his angels. They'll gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and he will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be a place of torture, a place of torment. It will be eternal. They will get justice or or they will get judgment for their law-breaking and their sin. This is a punishment far worse than you and I can deal. We can only take someone's life. We cannot and we do not have authority to send them to hell and to punish them forever. Only Jesus Christ does. And the reality is, is the longer we look at this judgment towards unbelievers, the longer we look at the punishment for weeds, we think that's a punishment we would not even wish on our worst enemies. And so when we look at the realities of hell, it should not make us look at unbelievers with disdain and scorn and go, you deserve it. It should make us have pity and compassion on them and share the gospel, plead with them even more. Receive Christ. Be saved from eternal damnation, from the punishment of God. Who are we to judge? Because we were just like them. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We were lost, each one of us going our own way. We were destined for wrath, Ephesians says. But it's not because you fixed your life or you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps or you changed your heart. But God made us alive together in Christ. It's the grace of God that saved us from the wrath that we all deserved. It's a grace we receive only by faith, not by works. Believing in Jesus Christ and his great sacrifice. That's what makes us different than them. It's nothing that you did. It's not you living a more moral or better life. And so we have no authority to judge. We don't want to judge. We wait For judgment is the Lord's. On that day, He will judge. In the meantime, waiting looks like actively obeying God's commands and actively sowing seed, evangelizing the lost, because we don't know who God's elect are from His non-elect, but we share the gospel with all. Now, if you're talking about dealing with defiant sin within the church... It's a different story. It's another reason, by the way, that I don't think the field is the church in this parable. Because Jesus would not say in this parable, essentially, hey, leave that defiant sinner in there. And then in Matthew 18 say, treat them as an outsider. Actually, get them out of the church. Jesus would not contradict himself with those teachings. And there's a different process in Scripture for a so-called believer In the church, someone who's calling themselves a Christian and acting like an unbeliever, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, "For what what have I to do to judge outsiders? I'm not going into Starbucks and saying, you know, you're a sinner, you're you're guilty of sin, and 
and you deserve judgment, and I'm actually going to send you there by prematurely ending your life. No, we don't do that. He says, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom we are to judge? God judges those on the outside. But as far as those on the inside, the so-called believer that is living a grossly immoral life, purge that evil person from among you. We do have a process within the church to distinguish those who are so-called believers but living lawlessly and the truly righteous that manifest good fruit. So that would be a different sermon, a different application, not the application of this parable. It's not that Jesus is saying, leave that grossly immoral person in your midst. Leave that weed there in your churches. It's a different, a different application altogether. It's just something that needs to be said. The third application, and this is it, believer hope. Hope. Hope in Christ, because redemption is coming. This is what we really need to, you know, this is what good waiting looks like. It's not wait in despondency, wait in despair. Lord, when are you going to blast these people? When are you going to get rid of all the evil? No, no, no. We wait with hope, looking forward to our redemption in Jesus Christ. When do the righteous shine like the sun? When will justice finally be accomplished? When will the righteous reign? When will all the corruption of this world be dealt with? When will all those wrongs be made right? When will we finally have a perfect leader? Not just a conservative leader. A perfect leader. When will that happen? That happens at the end of the age. Then, Jesus says, it is then, look at verse 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. I'm not pessimistic about our future, friends. I'm not pessimistic. Sure, the world around us is declining, to say the least. Sure, it will be more difficult for believers out there because as the growing influence of worldliness and unbelievers who are persecuting the church... Yes, trials, tribulation will come. But I'm not pessimistic. You know why? Because the field is his. You know that? The field is his. Those weeds in there, that's not a surprise to the sovereign king and creator of the world. The attack from unbelievers, he told you that would happen. You'd be persecuted. They're going to live around you. They're going to surround you. At times, oppress you. At times, just really work really hard against you as you're trying to obey Christ and achieve his mission. It's going to be hard, but the field is his. And he will redeem his people. He will restore his people. He will make all the wrongs right. Not our job, his, when he returns. When he returns. So that's our hope. Our hope is not in politicians. Our hope is not in a change of, you know, morality in the people around. No, no, our hope is Christ, right? Remember that. Remember that. Do not lay your hope in this world. Do not lay your hope in in political strategy. Don't lay your hope in men. Set your hope in Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, who is coming 
back. Promised he would, and he is. So when, you know, your friends at work say, oh, it's all going bad. The world's going to end. America is doomed. Reverse the attitude of that conversation, would you? And share the hope of Jesus Christ. Talk about Jesus, where our hope lies. Remind those people, if they call themselves Christian, that their hope isn't in here, in this world. Hope is in the one to come. The one that Jesus brings, when all the wrongs are made right. Hope in Christ. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And wait for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, great reminders from your word. Thank you for giving us this description of this age that we live in. At times it's confusing, Lord, because we look out into the world, we see unbelievers having a lot of these worldly strongholds, these earthly strongholds, God, and and it can be discouraging and we can lose hope. We can lose sight of of what you told us would clearly happen, God. And, And unfortunately for us, Lord, sometimes we... Even though we say our hope is in God and that we're trusting you, sometimes we give ourselves to hope in men, to hope in the things of this world. Help us to not do that. God, help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness, trusting that all these things will be added to us if we're just faithful to you. Give us a a great hope and an optimism in Christ's return. I pray that that would turn our, our glum and our Lord, our our, uh, dissatisfaction and our discouragement to joy, to peace that surpasses understanding and to an excitement, a zeal to live for Christ in this fallen world and to share the gospel all the more, to plead with sinners that they'd be reconciled to God and trust you, God, to do the radical change that's necessary in their lives and in their hearts and ultimately trust you to bring your kingdom to this earth. That's what we want, Lord. We don't want a kingdom of the world. We want the kingdom that's cut from heaven, the kingdom that comes with Christ. Give us eyes to look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen.